welcome to the Hindus In Focus podcast with a continuing close look at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. I'm Narayan Lakshman, Associate Editor at The Hindu and your host for today. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest for the podcast, Professor Adam Kucharski, who is an Associate Professor and the Sir Henry Dale Fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Professor Kucharski specializes in the mathematical analysis of infectious disease outbreaks, which puts him at the very heart of the debate on the global coronavirus pandemic, especially its spread and containment and mitigation questions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Uh, thank you. To begin, in your book, The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop, you talk about Ronald Ross a British doctor who in the late 19th century discovered that mosquitoes spread malaria and was rewarded the 1902 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. He was credited with applying mathematics, biology, and an understanding of societal forces as well to predict the progression pattern of an epidemic. How can we apply that uh, concept or that framework to the coronavirus pandemic today, specifically in terms of looking at the end game that we could predict for the havoc that's wreaked worldwide? One of the key uh, insights that, that Ross made was uh, to do with the control of in, infection. He, uh, he won his Nobel Prize for identifying that mosquitoes spread malaria, um, but then he was really interested in using mosquito control uh, to reduce uh, malaria and uh, ideally um, cause it to, to really come to zero uh, in a particular area. But at the time, a lot of people had this idea that you couldn't control malaria unless you could remove every single last um, mosquito. And and Ross used these very simple conceptual models. So thinking, you know, if you have so many mosquitoes and you have a certain probability of biting someone and that person might get bitten by another mosquito and, and then it spreads and, and just thought about these processes and realized that actually you don't need to remove every last mosquito. That actually once you get the density of mosquitoes low enough, um, chances are someone who's infected would recover before they pass it on to others. And we can think of a similar idea with a lot of the, the kind of physical distancing measures that are coming in. Um, because, of course, the physical distancing measures, initially, there may still be some infectious people out there. Um, but because these measures are in place, you know, they'll have the uh, infection, they'll recover before they pass it on to someone else. So it's, again, this idea that there will still be some interactions occurring within the population because we have key industries, your healthcare workers, these kind of groups that, that do need to interact with other people. Um, but because the level of interaction is sufficiently low, uh, that can control the infection. And that's what we've seen in places like Wuhan. Okay. I mean, you touched on several things that I think uh, it would be interesting to talk about. So one is what you said about social distancing, uh, which, of course, that is a message that we've been hearing time and again from different governments across the world. Um, but in your own work, you've looked at, I think, what you call dependent and independent happenings, uh, particularly in the context of identifying what an epidemic is and its potential to spread relatively fast through a population. So could you please talk to us a bit about whether it is we have maybe too many dependencies today, such as relating to hyper-urbanization, transportation networks, communications via the Internet, and indeed interlocking economies and finance. Does that make the contagion effects associated with this epidemic much worse? Um, those kind of connections can certainly help um, amplify uh, the effects we see of an outbreak. So these ideas of an independent dependent happening, um, independent happenings we might think of as things like you know random accidents that just occur and they're, they're not linked and one thing doesn't feed into another. 
And it was uh, originally, again, Ronald Ross who came up with this idea of what he called a dependent happening. So what happens to you depends on what happens to other people. And obviously, um, biological contagion is a good example of this. Uh, but we do see these knock-on effects happening in, in other ways. Um, so, for example, um, the knock-on effect on, on economies when you have a financial crisis. And even in a, in a biological outbreak like uh, COVID-19, having that connectivity that you know, what happens in a very local area of China can quickly influence what happens in other countries is really a transition we've, we've had in the last decade or two. Even if you look at, at flight volumes out of China since SARS back in 2003, it's really a, about a threefold increase. Um, so, so potentially what would have been a very small outbreak um, a few decades ago that wouldn't have affected other places, you know, now what happens in, in the UK or the US or India does very much depend on what's happening elsewhere. So it's interesting that you referenced, uh, you know, SARS or prior outbreaks. We can even look, talk about the Spanish flu or Ebola. How, in terms of the mathematics of epidemiology, which is your field, does COVID-19 differ uh, from these major infectious outbreaks? Um, there are a number of, of broad principles we can use to, to understand these infections. Um, and these, these can apply across a number of pathogens, in particularly uh, understanding um, the magnitude of spread. So each person who gets infected on average, how many people are they are they giving the virus to? Which for COVID nineteen is about two or three, uh, and then we can also think about the time scale. So if you have one case, how long on average is it until the the person they infect shows up with symptoms? And for COVID, that seems to be about five days or so. So you can get this this sense of time scale that's is probably doubling every five days in terms of your outbreak. But of course, the the nuances of what is driving those different numbers will vary between pathogens in terms of when is this transmission actually happening, what interactions are important. And and one of the big differences and real challenges with COVID-19 compared to something like SARS or Ebola is a lot of transmission seems to be happening very early on in the infection. So when people don't have symptoms or have very, very mild symptoms. Um, and one of the reasons that things like Ebola and SARS have been possible to control is that a lot of people who are uh, highly infectious have very distinctive symptoms and that means you can identify them you can look at look at who they've come in contact with and and make sure those people are quarantined whereas for COVID-19 a lot of the transmission happens for for people who might feel perfectly well or or, you know have a a very slight cough for example Uh, and that makes it very hard uh, to pick up all the infections it's why we've seen in many countries, even if they've been trying to detect cases coming in, um, many cases have managed to go un, uh, sort of undetected. Right, right. Which actually, uh, you know, makes me worry more about a country like India, where uh, I don't know if you followed it, but we have, especially given the size of our population, far, far fewer cases that have been detected and deaths as well associated with the pandemic. I think as of today, we stand somewhere between 500 and 600 cases, and you know, not even, uh, you know, just about double-digit deaths, less than 20 maybe. So to you, does this seem a little uh, suspicious in terms of, you know, it's really down to the lack of testing, which a lot of people have acknowledged is the case, or do you think that there is a possibility that maybe, you know, India acted fast in closing its international borders and then something structural perhaps within its population or society has made the spread uh, far less sort of, uh, uh, you know, it's actually limited the spread? I, I think in the early stages, it, it's quite hard to untangle those two things. Certainly when you have very small numbers of cases working out, is it just by chance or by population structure or, or other features that, that mean that transmission hasn't quite taken off yet? In Europe, we saw a lot of early transmission in Italy and, and 
that's quite possibly a chance event that that country got hit before others. Um, but I think once we start to get uh, more cases, and particularly more severe cases and deaths, you can then start to get a clearer picture of, of how much um, you might actually be seeing in terms of infection, because deaths are obviously generally well identified in the data. Um, and you know, we estimate that about 1% of um, of people with, with clear symptoms uh, will have a, a fatal outcome for this. So if you imagine that you have uh, 100 deaths, um, you you know you would really be expecting something in the range of about ten thousand cases, um, and so if you're not um, seeing that in your data, then that suggests that not all symptomatic cases are showing up. But it's, it's important to emphasise that this is is not just one or two countries that have this situation. That we we recently did some some rough estimates, and we we think you know many countries that that have clear outbreaks now are probably reporting less than 20% of their symptomatic cases. And I think that's partly due to testing and, and other logistical things. Uh, so that is a, a situation that's very common. But it does mean it's quite hard to get a handle on the outbreak as it is now. Because, of course, if you're if you're looking at deaths to try and understand what's going on in your outbreak, the, those people who've just died may well have been infected you know, several weeks earlier. So you really are looking into the past. Okay. And in the context of uh, a large number of people actually being infected, uh, you've also explored the idea in your book, I think, of uh, herd immunity. And indeed, that seemed to have some echoes in the UK's uh, you know, public health policy or their, their approach to the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, is that a viable notion, do you think, in this uh, sort of very, very rampant uh, pandemic? Uh, or do you think that it's it's something that it's not viable in the sense you will have too many people, the death toll will be too high, it will be politically unacceptable uh, to make herd immunity a reality. And if you could also explain that concept. Sure. So the, the, the concept of herd immunity, it relates back to Ronald Ross's work actually with mosquitoes. It's this idea that you don't need to get your entire population infected to stop an outbreak. But once you have enough susceptibles, then if you imagine you have someone infectious, um, sorry, once you have enough immune people, if you if you have someone who's infectious, it's more likely they'll meet someone who's immune than someone susceptible, and that will slow transmission without needing all of your population to be immune. So that's that's how vaccination works, that we, we vaccinate the majority and that stops outbreaks, even though there's newborns and maybe some groups that can't be vaccinated. Um, but as you say, for, for COVID-19, obviously this can have a really severe impact on, on health systems. It can, it can lead to a lot of fatalities. Uh, and so I think having herd immunity presented as an aim uh, really isn't isn't helpful and doesn't re- reflect the situation uh, we face. And I think in the UK there was this period of time where I was getting asked a lot of questions about is the UK strategy just to sit back and let everybody get infected in the country? And that that certainly wasn't um, wasn't the strategy as I saw it, and it wasn't the, the modelling work that we've been doing to try and um, provide some evidence about what the scenarios might be. It was it was very clear. If you look at the transmission of this uh, disease and you look at the severity, that, that very quickly it's going to overwhelm health systems. So I think we might be in a situation, especially in countries that, that maybe it's, it takes longer to slow down transmission, that there will be infections occurring. We estimate probably in the hundreds of thousands of infections have now incurred in the UK, even though we've got, um, uh, I think, only a few thousand confirmed cases, uh, which is is a lot of infection, but it's not enough to, to protect the population through this herd immunity mechanism. So I think we could see some immunity building in populations just because these outbreaks are happening. Um, but I don't think we should go into it with the aim of getting large numbers of people infected because if that all happens in a short 
period of time, you're very quickly going to overwhelm your hospitals. Okay, that's great. So if we can just take one final question and a step back uh, from the specifics of, of COVID, uh, a subject you've looked at closely is also another digital sort of uh, pandemic, which is the surge of fake news that we've seen in recent times. In India, as in other countries, we've seen a lot of it, uh, especially relating to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, uh, including, for example, unscientific uh, treatment methods being touted as uh, real solutions. So uh, do you see parallels between the way uh, fake news transmission happens and you know, deadly diseases such as COVID-19? I think there certainly is. Um, and uh, one of the, the actual similarities is if you just look at, at the individual level about sharing, um, viral content online actually actually seems pretty similar to COVID in terms of that, that individual step. So uh, COVID-19, on average, each case early on will give it to, to a couple of others. Um, in a study of viral Facebook content, um, it was found that each person on average, who shares a viral post will lead to about two more people sharing it. But the big difference is the timescale. That um, COVID-19, it takes a few days for that transmission and, and that new infection to occur, whereas online we might be talking, say, 30 seconds. So very quickly you get this, this much faster growth. Um, I think the other thing that's a similarity between uh, many of these infections is uh, the variation at the individual level. As we've seen for COVID-19, there's been some outbreaks where a single event sparks a, a large number of, of secondary infections. And a lot of content that becomes very popular online um, tends to have that feature too, that we see messages spreading on WhatsApp, but often there will be um, some high-profile person online or some media outlet that will have sparked that outbreak and, and shared to a large number of people. And then you see these smaller secondary clusters of sharing um, happening. So I think it, it is worth kind of considering those elements as well, that it's not just this idea that that everyone is sharing it with a couple of friends on, uh, you know, on uh, a message group or on WhatsApp or something. It is often those more prominent organizations and people that are feeding into that as well. Okay, fantastic and absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure your insights will go a long way to helping us understand the current pandemic more. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Adam Kucharski from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Thanks for joining us. All right, thank you.